welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, October 31st, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I am a huge fan of legal thrillers, whether it's books or movies. In fact, at one point in my life, uh, when I was in uh, junior high and high school, I dreamed of being an attorney. And then God kind of messed that all up by calling me to be a pastor. But that's okay. I'm happy with how it turned out. Uh, But here's some of my favorite movies uh, about uh, the legal field. And I wonder if any of these are on your list of favorites as well. So you got your classics from like the 50s and the 60s, uh, Witness for the Prosecution, Inherit the Wind, To Kill a Mockingbird. Then in the 70s and 80s, The Paper Chase and Justice for All and The Verdict. The 90s seemed to be a heyday for legal thrillers. Uh, A Few Good Men, uh, the hilarious My Cousin Vinny, and Tom Hanks in, in, in Philadelphia was so powerful. Not to mention all of the John Grisham yarns, which I have read every single one of these books. The Pelican Brief, The Firm, A Time to Kill, The Rainmaker, Runaway Jury. They're just all great stories. Plus, the 2000s have had some decent uh, thrillers as well. Legally Blonde, that was (laughs) very fun, one of my wife's favorites. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, and recently, uh, if you haven't seen Just Mercy or The Chicago 7, those are also two wonderful films. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the central components of the Christian faith. And and yet, can you imagine if it had to be proved in a court of law that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Biblical scholar uh, Douglas R.A. Hare, in his interpretation commentary on Matthew, asked that very question. In fact, he says point blank, there's quite a bit about Jesus' resurrection that probably would not go over very well in a court of law with a jury. For starters, there are uh, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of the Gospel writers have the same details when it comes to the resurrection. Specifically, uh, who first discovered the empty tomb? Who, Who was there? Matthew says it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark says it was Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James. Luke says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women. John says, no, it was just Mary Magdalene going by herself. Now, some over the years have used this discrepancies as proof that the early church couldn't have fabricated and made up the resurrection, because if they're going to do that, surely they would have got their stories straight and then put out a unified uh, account. Not exactly the kind of logic that holds up in a court of law. Professor Hare then writes this. The fact of the matter is, the case was not meant to be brought to a jury. It's a faith story intended not for unbelievers, but for believers. So, welcome to the fourth and final week in my October sermon series entitled Undead, Resurrection and New Life in the Bible. It all comes down to this, friends. Today is Jesus' resurrection day, at least in our sermon. And as Dr. Hare says, this is a faith story for believers. It's not to try to prove something to unbelievers. 
So today we're going to look very closely at Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection and see if, well, maybe there's something we can learn new. Now, many of us have been going to church for many years. We've heard this story over and over again. We think we know it inside and out. I was a bit surprised when I did the research uh, this week, and maybe you will be as well. So I invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought them today, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. If, if, you, if you didn't and you have your cell phone, you can take out your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app, you can download the church app, and it has a Bible app link to it. And we are in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 28. Um, actually, Lisa was reading from chapter 28. I want to start just a few verses Before that, in chapter 27. Now, this is near the end of Jesus' crucifixion. The religious authorities have tracked him down. They arrested him. They sentenced him to immediate execution, all in the span of about half of a day's time. Jesus has now been on the cross for about six hours, and the end has finally come. Uh, Matthew 27, beginning at verse 50. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, the innermost part of the temple in Jerusalem was reserved just for the priests. There were two sections, the outer sanctum and the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was the place where Israel said this is where the presence of God dwelt. It's where they had the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the, 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 the case containing the Ten Commandments and some of the manna in the wilderness and uh, I believe Moses' staff. Well, only the high priest could enter in the Holy of Holies and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, there was a curtain that separated the outer sanctum from the Holy of Holies. That's uh, what Matthew is saying and other gospel writers as well. That's what tore at Jesus' crucifixion. Literally, the barrier that kept humanity from the presence of God was no longer. As one commentator put it, this effectively demolished the temple as the site of God's presence. Now, in addition to the temple ripping, the temple curtain ripping, we're also told that the earth shook and the rocks split. Biblical scholar R.C.H. Lenski comments that earthquakes in the Bible denote the presence and intervention of God among humanity. And it happens quite a bit. In the Old Testament, in the books of Exodus, 1 Kings, Psalms, Haggai, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, earthquakes all uh, reflect something that God is doing in and among humanity. Ben Witherington III adds, God is changing the nature and fate of humanity here, and the universe reacts. Verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. And yes, you just heard that right. It's Halloween. I had to include these verses, right? And only Matthew, of all the gospel writers, uh, records this, that up from the graves and out of the tombs come bodies of the faithful dead. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, wait, what? That's in the Bible? How have I never seen that before? Well, author Clay Morgan, uh, in his book, Undead, Revised, Resuscitated, and Reborn, says this 
about this curious passage. Most Bible scholars don't know what to say about this passage. We don't know who these dead people were who came back to life. We're not told who they appeared to in the city or where they went after the appearances. Did they visit loved ones or old enemies? Did they talk? Did they just walk around down the road or or vanish in some magnificent display? All we know is that one serious earthquake punctuated the magnitude of Christ's death. You may remember four weeks ago we began our series here in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, the famous valley of dry bones. And more than one commentator remarked that this curious passage from Matthew chapter 27, uh, where the dead rise from their graves, that could actually be the culmination of what Ezekiel 37 prophesied about, that the time had come for the spiritual renewal of Israel when all would come to know that the Lord is indeed God. In fact, there was an early Pharisaic tradition that suggested that when the Messiah would come, he would come over the Mount of Olives first, and that the hill, the Mount of Olives, would split open and the dead would rise. So many ultra-Orthodox seek to be buried close to the summit on the hill of the Mount of Olives. In fact, today there are over 150,000 graves there because they believed in that prophecy. Verse 54. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were terrified and said truly this man was God's son and truer words were never spoken this ends the account of Jesus's crucifixion now in the verses that follow Jesus's body is taken down from the cross it's given to Joseph of Arimathea Joseph was a follower of Jesus but he was also one of the religious leaders he was a Pharisee And he uh, wrapped Jesus' body in a linen cloth. He laid it in a tomb. He rolled a great stone over the entrance so as to keep out the wild animals from desecrating the body. And Matthew, again, records something that none of the other gospel writers include in their account of the crucifixion and resurrection. Matthew says the following day, the religious leaders went to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor in that area. And they were concerned that Jesus' followers might try to come and steal the body and then claim that he rose from the dead. Here's Pilate's response, verses 65 and 66. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, or it could also be translated, take a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So the religious leaders went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Okay, now, the likelihood of Jesus' disciples actually coming to try to steal the body is pretty slim, right? I mean, we know that the story was, as soon as uh, Jesus was arrested, they all fled, and they were hiding out, locked in a room, because they were afraid that they were going to be the ones that the authorities came for next. They probably weren't planning on pulling off the heist of the millennium. But you have to love the way that Matthew phrases Pilate's command, right? Make it as secure as you can. As if to say, uh, yeah, good luck on keeping Jesus confined, right? You know nothing about the power of God. Of course, Pilate wasn't thinking that, but that's how we see his words. Now we come to the actual resurrection. Chapter 28, the first three verses. After the Sabbath... 
As the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Now, in Matthew's account, the women are not coming to anoint the body of Jesus. They're just coming, I guess, to to be there at the tomb. Matthew mentions two women. Why two? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it states that there must be two witnesses to corroborate any account from a legal standpoint. But it's interesting, Professor Hare notes that women were not regarded as competent witnesses in Jewish courts. So this detail would not uh, impress those hearing the story back in that day. However, within the Christian faith community, women have played an indispensable role, especially as witnesses to the first uh, Easter, to that resurrection story. So two exceptional uh, events take place in these first two verses. First, there's another earthquake, right? Just like in chapter 27, and we know what happens when there's an earthquake in the Bible. That means God's presence and intervention is at hand. Second, an angel descends from above. As God's messengers, angels are always a sign of God's activity in progress or something that is about to happen. And this one is specifically designated as an angel of the Lord. Just in case you were thinking it was maybe just a random angel that happened to pop by. No, this is an angel of the Lord. Now, just to be clear, the angel didn't come to open the tomb so that Jesus could get out. Jesus had already risen. In fact, what's interesting is that none of the Gospels actually describe how the resurrection happened. All they're able to say is, here's the effects of what happened in the resurrection. Verse 4, for fear of the angel, the guards shook like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he's been raised, as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. Now, all throughout the Bible, whenever angels make an appearance on earth, usually the the response from humans is to be completely afraid. Uh, Not because angels are scary, but because they're so holy. And being uh, in the presence of God's messengers is unlike anything we've ever experienced. So it's interesting that Matthew tells us that the guards who were hired to guard the dead man's body, they suddenly become like the dead man himself, although the dead man has come back to life. The angel engages the women in a very important conversation, and, and, and the angel tells them about Jesus, the crucified one. Dr. M. Eugene Boring in his uh, New Interpreter's Bible Commentary says this. Oh, there he is. And here's what he says. The Greek perfect tense here indicates a completed act with ongoing consequences. So Jesus' crucifixion was not a temporary episode in the career of the Son of God, a past event nullified, transcended, or exchanged at the resurrection for heavenly glory. In other words, Ben Witherington says it indicates an event in the past that has a lasting uh, impact on an ongoing basis. So the crucifixion wasn't just something that happened in Jesus' timeline. No, it was an on, it's an ongoing event that continues to impact each and every one of us today. That angel sends the women off as the very first evangelists to go and tell the good news, the story that Jesus is alive. 
verse 8 and 9. So the women left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Now, first of all, I know today is Halloween. Uh, I wasn't aware of the whole zombie Jesus movement, were you? Like, evidently, it's a thing. Like, it's a very weird thing, but it's definitely a thing. Here's the real thing, however. The resurrected Jesus was not a zombie. In fact, as Clay Morgan puts it, he's the anti-zombie because Jesus came back to give life, not to take it. Second, I love the fact that Jesus only met them after they started on their journey, after they started moving towards what the angel had called and commissioned them to do. He could have met them at the tomb. He could have said, oh, I'm so glad that you're here and had that moment there. But no, instead he waited until they had, shall we say, some skin in the game. And they were already being obedient in response to the angel. I think that sometimes in life, God gives us a a, a big task, and we wonder, how are we ever going to do this? Like, there's no way on our own we have all the strength and the resources. I mean, the women, it says they left the tomb with fear and great joy. But once we, like the women, start, once we take those first steps, sometimes very difficult and painful steps to actually move in this new direction that God is calling us, that God will often meet us on that way and give us whatever it is that we need to accomplish what we've been invited and called to do. That's what happened to the women in this story. Jesus came to them and said, greetings. Now, I had to chuckle when I was reading what some of the commentators said about this. Douglas Hare remarked that while greetings is actually an appropriate rendering of the Greek word, it's not really that powerful, is it? He said, it's kind of like today, in today's lingo, Jesus saying, hi there. It just doesn't seem to uh, ooze with, you know, Easter Sunday, the first resurrection greeting. The the today's English version translates translates as peace be with you, which kind of gets a better sense, but that's not an accurate translation. Dr. Hare says maybe an appropriate rendering uh, of this greeting by Jesus would be rejoice, rejoice. And the women fall at his feet and worship, and Jesus reiterates their task at hand, verse 10. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see, Galilee was the place where it all started. That's where Jesus grew up. That's where he called the first disciples to come and follow him. Also, in Matthew's theology, Galilee is the land of the Gentiles. It's where the book will end at the end of chapter 28 when Jesus gives the great commission and and sends them out to go and tell the whole world about his love and his grace. It's in Galilee. And there we have it. Jesus' resurrection. But just like last week, uh, when it's over, it isn't really over, right? There's always a few people who are more in tune with death than they are with life. That's what happened last week with Lazarus. That's what happens this week with Jesus. Verse 11, chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel. While they were going, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, if this comes to the governor's ears we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. 
Now, here's another part of the story that we don't often hear, right? And again, probably because it's only recorded in Matthew's gospel. Now, do you remember why there were guards at Jesus' tomb in the first place? They didn't just guard everyone who died and was buried. No, remember the chief priests went to Pilate and they said, oh, we need some guards because his disciples may try to steal the body and say that he had been raised from the dead. Well, now these very same people are uh, uh, perpetrating the very same fraud they originally were trying to prevent. It's ironic, isn't it? Actually, it's even worse when you think about it, right? Even before the women made it to the disciples to tell them that Jesus had been risen, the guards who were there, who witnessed the resurrection themselves, or, or at least the angel and the empty tomb parts, they share the news with the religious leaders. So technically, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they are the very first people to be told of the resurrection of Jesus from eyewitness accounts, the soldiers. In fact, in Jesus' day, Roman soldiers were the most unimpeachable witnesses possible. If you had a Roman soldier testify for something, that was the fact and the truth, no questions about it. And you notice what the religious leaders do. They don't question the veracity of the guard's story. They don't say, oh, are you sure that's what happened? No, no, no. They just accept it as truth. They decide, however, to do whatever it takes to turn good news into fake news. They willingly reject the truth and intentionally seek to mislead others, and you thought that was only a 21st century phenomenon. <laughs> Au contraire. Now, biblical scholars are mixed on whether or not they think this actually happened. A number of details just don't seem to add up. First, as a Roman soldier, sleeping on the job was a crime punishable by death. So it's very unlikely that any soldier worth his salt would agree to admit to something like sleeping on the job. Second, the Jewish religious leaders had absolutely no sway when it came to influencing Pilate. So their promise of immunity to the soldiers, if they go along with their plan, was something they really could not deliver on. And then third, the soldiers were off-duty, so to speak, right? They weren't working for the Holy Roman Empire on the Jesus tomb detail. No, this is how Roman soldiers made a little bit extra money on the side. They hired themselves as private security guards for various situations that would arise. So the Jewish leaders had no authority over them either. And besides, if it ever went to court, how would the guards have known that it was disciples who took away the body because any good defense attorney would point out, by their own admission, if you were asleep... How do you know who took the body? But these are just minor details, right? Now remember, my friends, this is not a story that's meant for the jury. The resurrection of Jesus is a story meant for believers. It's a story that puts every other resurrection and new life story that we've been studying in this series in its proper perspective. Because Jesus' death and resurrection breaks the power of death itself. I mean, just ask the people in Jerusalem who were greeted by all those resurrected saints coming out of their tombs. Like, that would have been a day you would have never forgotten, right? The actor Jack Lemmon once said, death ends a life, but not a relationship. And ultimately, that's what we hold on to as Christians, right? As Christ's ones. And this series has looked at a number of resurrection and new life stories and events in the Bible and the basis of our faith as Christians is that we are in an eternal relationship with Jesus. And no matter what may come our way in this life, even when our bodies 
meet their eventual end, that is not the end because Jesus has defeated the power of death once and for all. And as uh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not life or death. Death may end a life, but it cannot end a relationship. And thanks be to God for that truth. More importantly, thanks be to God for the relationship we have with Jesus and with the power of his resurrection. It was not some event in the past, but is an ongoing reality that changes everything about you and me and this world around us. And all God's people said...